0: The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick DeRett. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Chapter 49. Part 2. Conquest of Italy by the Franks. Two original epistles from Gregory II to the Emperor Leo are still extant, and if they cannot be praised as the most perfect models of eloquence and logic, they exhibit the portrait, or at least the mask, of the founder of the papal monarchy. During ten pure and fortunate years, says Gregory to the Emperor, we have tasted the annual comfort of your royal letters, subscribed in purple ink, with your own hand the sacred pledges of your attachment to the orthodox creed of our fathers. How deplorable is the change! How tremendous the scandal! you now accuse the Catholics of idolatry and by the accusation you betray your own impiety and ignorance. To this ignorance we are compelled to adapt the grossness of our style and arguments. The first elements of holy letters are sufficient for your confusion and were you to enter a grammar school and of all yourself the enemy of our worship the simple and pious children would be provoked to cast their hornbooks at your head. After this decent salutation, the Pope attempts the usual distinction between the idols of antiquity and the Christian images. The former were the fanciful representations of phantoms or demons at a time when the true God had not manifested his person in any visible likeness. The latter are the genuine forms of Christ, his mother and his saints, who had approved by a crowd of miracles the innocence and merit of this relative worship. He must indeed have trusted to the ignorance of Leo since he could assert the perpetual use of images from the apostolic age and their venerable presence in the six synods of the Catholic Church. A more specious argument is drawn from present possession and recent practice. The harmony of the Christian world supersedes the demand of a general council and Gregory frankly confesses that such assemblies can only be useful under the reign of an orthodox prince. To the impudent and inhuman Leo, more guilty than a heretic, he recommends peace, silence, and implicit obedience to his spiritual guides of Constantinople and Rome. The limits of civil and ecclesiastical powers are defined by the pontiff. To the former he appropriates the body, to the latter the soul. The sword of justice is in the hands of the magistrate. The more formidable weapon of excommunication is entrusted to the clergy. And in the exercise of their divine commission, a zealous son will not spare his offending father. The successor of Saint Peter may lawfully chastise the kings of the earth. You assault us, O tyrant, with a carnal and military hand. Unarmed and naked, we can only implore the Christ, the Prince of the heavenly host, that he will send unto you a devil for the destruction of your body and the salvation of your soul. You declare with foolish arrogance, I will dispatch my orders to Rome. I will break in pieces the image of St. Peter and Gregory like his predecessor Martin, shall be transported in chains and in exile to the foot of the imperial throne. Would to God that I might be permitted to tread in the footsteps of the Holy Martin, but may the fate of Constance serve as a warning to the persecutors of the church." After his just condemnation by the bishops of Sicily, the tyrant was cut off in the fullness of his sins by a domestic servant. The saint is still adored by the nations of Scythia, among whom he ended his banishment and his life. But it is our duty to live for the edification and support of the faithful people, nor are we reduced to risk our safety on the event of the combat. Incapable as you are of defending your Roman subjects, The maritime situation of the city may perhaps expose it to your depredation, but we can remove to the distance of 4 and 20 stadia to the first fortress of the Lombards, and then you may pursue the winds. Are you ignorant that the popes are the bond of union, the mediators of peace between the east and west? The eyes of the nation are fixed on our humility and they revere as a God upon earth the Apostle St. Peter whose image you threaten to destroy. The remote and interior kingdoms of the West present their homage to Christ and his Vice-Regent and we now prepare to visit one of their most powerful monarchs who desires to receive from our hands the sacrament of baptism. The barbarians have submitted to the yoke of the gospel, while you alone are deaf to the voice of the shepherd. These pious barbarians are kindled into rage. They thirst to avenge the persecution of the East. Abandon your rash and fatal enterprise, reflect, tremble, and repent. If you persist, we are innocent of the blood that will be spilt in the contest. May it fall on your own head." The first assault of Leo against the images of Constantinople had been witnessed by a crowd of strangers from Italy and the West, who related with grief and indignation the sacrilege of the Emperor, But on the reception of his proscriptive edict, they trembled for their domestic deities. The images of Christ and the Virgin, of the angels, martyrs, and saints, were abolished in all the churches of Italy, and a strong alternative was proposed to the Roman pontiff, the royal favor as the price of his compliance, degradation, and exile as the penalty of his disobedience. Neither zeal nor policy allowed him to hesitate, and the haughty strain in which Gregory addressed the Emperor displays his confidence in the truth of his doctrine or the powers of resistance. Without depending on prayers or miracles, he boldly armed against the public enemy, and his pastoral letters admonished the Italians of their danger and their duty. At this signal, Ravenna, Venice, and the citizens of Ex, Sartate, and Pentapolis adhered to the cause of religion. Their military force by sea and land consisted for the most part of the navies and the spirit of patriotism and real, was transfused into the mercenary strangers. The Italians swore to live and die in the defense of the Pope and the holy images. The Roman people was devoted to their father and even the Lombards were ambitious to share the merit and advantage of this holy war. The most treasonable act, but the most obvious revenge, was the destruction of the statues of Leo himself. The most effectual and pleasing measure of rebellion was the withholding the tribute of Italy and depriving him of a power which he had recently abused by the imposition of a new capitation. A form of administration was preserved by the election of magistrates and governors, and so high was the public indignation that the Italians were prepared to create an orthodox emperor and to conduct him with a fleet and army to the palace of Constantinople. In that palace, the Roman bishops, the second and third Gregory, were condemned as the authors of the revolt, and every attempt was made either by fraud or force to seize their persons and to strike at their lives. The city was repeatedly visited or assaulted by captains of the guards, And dukes and exarchs of high dignity or secret trust, they landed with foreign troops, they obtained some domestic aid, and the superstition of Naples was blushed that her fathers were attacked to the cause of heresy. But these clandestine or open attacks were repelled by the courage and vigilance of the Romans. The Greeks were overthrown and massacred, their leaders suffered an ignominious death, and the popes, however inclined to mercy, refused to intercede for these guilty victims. At Ravenna, the several quarters of the city had long exercised a bloody and hereditary feud. In religious controversy, they found a new element of faction. But the votaries of images were superior in numbers or spirit, and the exarch who attempted to stem the torrent lost his life in a popular sedition. To punish this flagitious deed and restore his dominion in Italy, the emperor sent a fleet and army into the Adriatic Gulf, after suffering from the winds and waves, much loss and delay, the Greeks made their descent in the neighborhood of Ravenna. They threatened to depopulate the guilty capital and to imitate, perhaps to surpass, the example of Justinian the Second, who had chastised a former rebellion by the choice and execution of 50 of the principal inhabitants. The women and clergy in sackcloth and ashes lay prostrate in prayer. The men were in arms for for the defense of their country. The common danger had united the factions, and the event of a battle was preferred to the slow miseries of a siege. In a hard-fought day, as the two armies alternatively yielded and advanced, a phantom was seen. A voice was heard, and Ravenna was victorious by the assurance of victory. The strangers repeated to their ships, but the populous seacoast poured forth a multitude of boats. The waters of the Po were so deeply infected with blood that during six years of public prejudice sustained from the fish of the river and the institution of an annual feast perpetuated the worship of images and the abhorrence of the Greek tyrant. Amidst the triumph of the Catholic arms, the Roman pontiff convened a synod of 93 bishops against the heresy of the iconoclasts. With their consent, he pronounced a general excommunication against all who, by word or deed, should attack the tradition of the Fathers and the images of the saints. In this sentence, the emperor was tacitly involved, but the vote of a last and hopeless remonstrance may seem to imply that the anathema was yet suspended over his guilty head. No sooner had they confirmed their own safety, the worship of images, and the freedom of Rome and Italy than the popes appeared to have relaxed of their severity and to have spared the relics of the Byzantine dominion. Their moderate councils delayed and prevented the election of a new emperor and they exhorted the Italians not to separate from the body of the Roman monarchy. The exarch was permitted to reside within the walls of Ravenna, a captive rather than a master, until the imperial coronation of Charlemagne, the government of Rome and Italy was exercised in the name of the successors of Constantine the liberty of Rome which had been oppressed by the arms and arts of Augustus was rescued after 750 years of servitude from the persecution of Leo the Isaurian. By the Caesars the triumph of the consuls had been annihilated in the decline and fall of the Empire the god Terminus, the sacred boundary had insensibly receded from the ocean, the Rhine, the Danube, and the Euphrates, and Rome was reduced to her ancient territory from Viterbo to Teresina, and from Narni to the mouth of the Tiber. When the kings were banished, the Republic reposed on the firm basis which had been founded by their wisdom and virtue their perpetual jurisdiction was divided between two annual magistrates, the Senate continued to exercise the powers of administration and council, and the legislative authority was distributed in the assemblies of the people by a well-proportioned scale of property and service. Ignorant of the arts of luxury, the primitive Romans had improved the science of government and war. The will of the community was absolute. The rights of the individuals were sacred. 130,000 citizens were armed for defense or conquest, and a band of robbers and outlaws was molded into a nation deserving of freedom and ambitious of glory. When the sovereignty of the Greek emperors was extinguished the ruins of Rome presented the sad image of depopulation and decay. Her slavery was a habit, her liberty an accident, the effect of superstition, and the object of her own amazement and terror. The last vestiges of the substance or even of the forms of the Constitution was obliterated from the practice and memory of the Romans, and they were devoid of knowledge, for virtue again to build the fabric of a commonwealth. Their scanty remnant, the offspring of slaves and strangers, was despicable in the eyes of the victorious barbarians. As often as the Franks or Lombards expressed their most bitter contempt of a foe, they called him a Roman. And in this name, says the Bishop Leoprand, we include whatever is base, whatever is cowardly, whatever is perfidious, the extremes of avarice and luxury and every vice that can prostitute the dignity of human nature. By the necessity of their situation the inhabitants of Rome were cast into the rough model of a republican government. They were compelled to elect some judges in peace and some leaders in war. The nobles assembled to deliberate, and their resolves could not be executed without the union and consent of the multitude. The style of the Roman Senate and people was revived, but the spirit was fled, and their new independence was disgraced by the tumultuous conflict of licentiousness and oppression. The want of laws could only be supplied by the influence of religion and their foreign and domestic councils were moderated by the authority of the bishop. His arms, his sermons, his correspondence with the kings and prelates of the west, his recent services, their gratitude and oath, accustomed the Romans to consider him as the first magistrate or prince of the city. The Christian humility of the popes was not offended by the name of Dominus or Lord, and their face and inscription are still apparent on the most ancient coins. Their temporal dominion is now confirmed by the reverence of a thousand years, and their noblest title is the free choice of a people whom they had redeemed from slavery. In the quarrels of ancient Greece, the holy people of Elis enjoyed a perpetual peace, and under the protection of Jupiter and in the exercise of the Olympic Games, happy would it have been for the Romans if a similar privilege had guarded the patrimony of St. Peter from the calamities of war, if the Christians who visited the holy threshold would have sheathed their swords in the presence of the apostle and his successor. But this mystic circle could have been traced only by the wand of the legislature and a sage. This pacific system was incompatible with the zeal and ambition of the popes. The Romans were not addicted like the inhabitants of Ellis to the innocent and placid labors of agriculture. And the barbarians of Italy, though softened by the climate, were far below the Grecian states in the institutions of public and private life. A memorable example of repentance and piety was exhibited by Leoprend, King of the Lombards. In arms at the gates of the Vatican, the conqueror listened to the voice of Gregory the Second, withdrew his troops, resigned his conquests, respectfully visited the Church of St. Peter and after performing his devotions, offered his sword and dagger, his cuirass and mantle, his silver cross, and his crown of gold on the tome of the Apostle. But this religious fervor was the illusion, perhaps the artifice, of the moment. The sense of interest is strong and lasting. The love of arms and rapine was congenial to the Lombards and both the prince and people were irresistibly tempted by the disorders of Italy, the nakedness of Rome, and the unwarlike profession of her new chief. On the first edicts of the emperor they declared themselves the champions of the holy images. liert invaded the province of Romagna which had already assumed that distinctive appellation The Catholics of the Exarchate yielded without reluctance to his civil and military power, and a foreign enemy was introduced for the first time into the impregnable fortress of Ravenna. That city and fortress were speedily recovered by the active diligence and maritime forces of the Venetians, and those faithful subjects obeyed the exhortation of Gregory himself in separating the personal guilt of Leo from the general cause of the Roman Empire. The Greeks were less mindful of the service than the Lombards of the injury. The two nations, hostile in their faith, were reconciled in a dangerous and unnatural alliance. The king and the exarch marched to the conquest of Spoleto and Rome. The storm evaporated without effect but the policy of Laird alarmed Italy with a vexatious alternative of hostility and truce. His successor, Astolphus, declared himself the equal enemy of the emperor and the pope. Ravenna was subdued by force or treachery, and this final conquest extinguished the series of the exarchs who had reigned with a subordinate power since the time of Justinian and the ruin of the Gothic Kingdom. Rome was summoned to acknowledge the victorious Lombard as her lawful sovereign. The annual tribute of a piece of gold was fixed as the ransom of each citizen and the sword of destruction was unsheathed to exact the penalty of her disobedience. The Romans hesitated, they entreated, they complained, and the threatening barbarians were checked by arms and negotiations till the popes had engaged the friendship of an ally and avenger beyond the Alps. In his distress, the first Gregory had implored the aid of the hero of the age, of Charles Martel, who governed the French monarchy with the humble title of mayor or duke, and who by his signal victory over the Saracens had saved his country, and perhaps Europe, from the Mohammedan yoke. The ambassadors of the Pope were received by Charles with decent reverence, but the greatness of his occupations and the shortness of his life prevented his interference in the affairs of Italy, except by a friendly and ineffectual mediation. His son, Pepin, the heir of his power and virtues, assumed the office of champion of the Roman church, and the zeal of the French prince appears to have prompted by the love of glory and religion. But the danger was on the banks of the Tiber, the succor on those of the Seine and our sympathy is cold to the relation of distant misery. Amidst the tears of the city, Stephen the Third embraced the generous resolution of visiting in person the courts of Lombardy and France to deprecate the injustice of his enemy or to excite the pity and indignation of his friend. After soothing the public despair by litanies and orations, he undertook this laborious journey with the ambassadors of the French monarch and the Greek emperor. The King of the Lombards was inexorable, but his threats could not silence the complaints nor retard the speed of the Roman pontiff, who traversed the Pinine Alps reposed in the abbey of St. Maurice and hastened to grasp the right hand of his protector, a hand which was never lifted in vain, either in war or friendship. Stephen was entertained as the visible successor of the apostle. At the next assembly, the field of March or of May, his injuries were exposed to a devout and warlike nation, and he repassed the Alps, not as a suppliant but as a conqueror at the head of a French army which was led by the king in person. The Lombards after a weak resistance obtained an ignominious peace and swore to restore the possessions and to respect the sanctity of the Roman Church. But no sooner was Astolphus delivered from the presence of the French arms then he forgot his promise and resented his disgrace. Rome was again encompassed by his arms, and Stephen, apprehensive of fatiguing the zeal of his transalpine allies, enforced his complaint and request by an eloquent letter in the name and person of St. Peter himself. The Apostle assures his adopted sons, the king, the clergy, and the nobles of France, that, dead in the flesh, he is still alive in the spirit, that they now hear and must obey the voice of the founder and guardian of the Roman Church, that the Virgin, the angels, the saints, and the martyrs, and all the host of heaven unanimously urge the request and will confess the obligation that riches, victory and paradise will crown their pious enterprise and that eternal damnation will be the penalty of their neglect if they suffer his tomb, his temple and his people to fall into the hands of the perfidious Lombards. The second expedition of Pepin was not less rapid and fortunate than the first. St. Peter was satisfied, Rome was again saved, and Astolphus was taught the lessons of justice and sincerity by the scourge of a foreign master. After this double chastisement the Lombards languished about 20 years in a state of languor and decay, but their minds were not yet humbled to their condition, and instead of affecting the pacific virtues of the feeble They peevishly harassed the Romans with a repetition of claims, evasions, and inroads, which they undertook without reflection and terminated without glory. On either side, their expiring monarchy was pressed by the zeal and prudence of Pope Adrian I, the genius, the fortune, and the greatness of Charlemagne, the son of Pepin, These heroes of the church and state were united in public and domestic friendship and while they trampled on the prostrate, they varnished their proceedings with the fairest colors of equity and moderation. The passes of the Alps and the walls of Pavia were the only defense of the Lombards. The former were surprised, the latter were invested by the son of Pepin, and after a blockade of two years, Desiderius, the last of their native princes, surrendered his scepter and his capital. Under the dominion of a foreign king, but in the possession of the national laws, the Lombards became the brethren rather than the subjects of the Franks who derived their blood and manners and language from the same Germanic origin. End of chapter 5. Part 2. Recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire, USA.